Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Friday afternoon. You know, as we've been uh, following uh, the situation in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, uh, the lead up to the invasion, everything that's happened since, you know, certainly we've tried to to find the, the best insight and, and perspective to really understand what's what's going on. Uh, to that end, you know, the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, has been a great source of insight and expertise in, in understanding what's going on here, understanding Putin's motivations, understanding what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Clearly, the Putin regime is taking notice. It was interesting because back in March, the uh, Russian regime released a list of Canadians who were subject to sanction. Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute was on that list. And just yesterday... Uh, the Putin regime released a new released a new list of 61 Canadians, the subject of sanction, and included uh, you know some well known figures like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, for example, and actually included three experts from the McDonald Laurier Institute, bringing the total now to four of their experts that have been sanctioned by the Kremlin. It was Marcus Kolga in March, and most recently uh, Shuvaloy Majumdar, Balkan Devlin, and Richard Shamuka who's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, McDonaldLaurier.ca. And Richard joins us on the line here this afternoon. Richard, great to have you with us here today. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. I would imagine, I mean, it's, at some level, it's a little jarring as much as I suppose it is kind of a badge of honor to be singled out in this way. Let me just get your initial thoughts, your reaction when, when you first saw this list yesterday. Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good encapsulation. I've uh, been used as the word I was using. To some degree, I, it, I'll be honest. Like I'm generally a person who tries to understand issues and just try to explain them. Right. Right. I, I, am the person who just, I'm not, a, I don't like using the word I very much. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be part of the story. I kind of want to explain the story and to be woken up and sort of identified in this way uh, is, is, is strange. And I don't fully understand why it happened. Uh, I've written quite a bit and I've, you know, talked on your show before uh, about what has happened uh, there, talking about Putin and his regime, uh, you know, the nature of the conflict. So, but there's been people out there who've been far more sort of strident in their commentary. And, and so to be highlighted in this way, it's just, it's just strange. I, I guess that is yeah. kind of the way to say it. it, it doesn't, I, I'm still kind of processing it a bit, to be honest. Yeah, it, it was a little weird to read the list because, you know, there were some journalists on the list, uh, you know, to, to see you know, policy analysts on the list, politicians on the list, like the mayor of Toronto was on, on the list. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily an obvious rhyme or reason to all of this, and maybe we shouldn't, you know, look too hard for logic when it comes to, to the Kremlin. But what do you attribute it to as you sit back and try to make sense of this? What, what does it mean? How, how best do you explain it? Uh, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. Uh, I think certainly uh, McDonald-Lorient, I should say, uh, has been kind of been active in, in sort of discussing it. Marcus Kolga has done so much great work about talking about disinformation and Russian infiltration of our of, of Western societies and, and really deserves a lot of the sort of, you know, praise and credit for the work he's done. And I, I think to some degree, I'm a little bit been pulled in by, uh, by association, just a bit. Uh, 
So I think that's one way. There's the mechanics of why the list was created, right? Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a broader lesson we can understand is that this is a, this is a regime, uh, a totalitarian regime, right, that cannot, uh, cannot brook any dissent against it. And any time that they see things that kind of challenge that narrative about how great things are going in Ukraine as they're trying to portray to their own people or, or how Russia is a great power, they're going to try to stifle and stifle that dissent. And I mean, this is a pretty, uh, this isn't a, this is a pretty low level kind of event, right? Like it's, it's not, uh, uh, you know, being sanctioned to go to Russia or anything like that isn't really that big of a detriment, but I think it's just illustrative of just how they think, right. And how they react towards anything that kind of disrupts what they're trying to do. So that's probably yeah. the two ways I'd look at it. Yeah, and I think, you know, one, one good example of that is uh, Jim Watson, who is the mayor of Ottawa, and it appears as though the reason he's on this list is because he supported putting these these signs outside the Russian embassy in Ottawa. The signs, I think, said, free Ukraine, and, you know, they, they were posted outside the Russian embassy. That's, I, I think, the entire reason why he's on this list. So you talk about how sensitive they are to any kind of criticism. Well, there's a great example, right? Yeah, uh, my guess is that uh, myself, uh, uh, Dr. Devlin, and uh, Marcus wrote a piece in the Toronto Sun, I believe, uh, oh, near the start of the conflict, and I suspect that might be part of it. That would have been in that. It's just one piece, right? Uh, but that's, but that's, I think, again, shows the capriciousness of, of how this is. And, and that's, that's indicative of just any kind of totalitarian state, right, that, that wants to enforce control. You don't know. Were you living under that kind of fear, right, uh, of, of retribution or, or some sort of sanction uh, at any time in order to keep people in line, right? Well, and maybe at some level it, it smacks us some, some desperation on Putin's part too, which yeah, maybe at some level is encouraging if, if he's spiraling or feels like this is all not going very well. I, I mean, at, at some level that's a good thing, but it also you know, raises the question of what else is he capable of? And, you know, regardless of what list they're putting together, I think the more immediate concern is, you know, what they're prepared to do in Ukraine. Um, your thoughts on, on that bigger picture question and more specifically what might lie ahead in the, the coming days and weeks here? Oh, I think that that's, that's definitely something they were planning well before the actual invasion started. We knew that they were compiling lists. I know they, the uh, UK uh, intelligence agencies identified that they had, I, they had pulled lists of, Places of you know key individuals in Ukraine and who they were going to remove had they uh, how they have taken over or occupied large portions of the country and we've seen it in action. Uh, I mean uh, some of the horrific photos that we've seen in places like Bucha or stories uh, in, in other areas. We, we know that they have identified key people that could coalesce some sort of resistance behind their lines and eliminate them, right? Mayors or leading people within town. So. I, I mean, it, it's one of the fundamental tools of any sort of repressive state is to do something like this. Not to say, again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to say what's happened to be any, you know, anything close to like something like that. But it, it, it's kind of a very much smaller example of something much larger that they do to other countries. You know, we or, would, like, yeah. And, and certainly you've done a lot of research in the area of military procurement, and we've talked to you about that before. I mean, it was interesting to see this week, you know, the federal government announced that we are going to send, you know, heavy artillery, more military equipment to Ukraine, but still a lot of question about how much and how and when. 
you know, we're, we're still, I think, somewhat limited in, in this area. I guess, you know, the announcement was encouraging. But, you know, your thoughts on, on you know, whether we've done enough in this area, how, how limited we are in helping in this area. I, so we don't know very much at all. Like, we don't even know what they're sending. I mean, they said how they are artillery, but if you haven't understand the stocks of what Canada has left, uh, we don't know, right? Uh, so, and uh, I think a lot of the things that has happened or a lot of the announcements have been to some degree a little bit performative, right? That they've mm-hmm. said that we're doing X, Y, or Z, and we've realized, well, it's actually not as much as they're trying to say, Right. Uh, part of the problem is that the capacity for Canada to actually provide much is limited. And there are some maybe innovative approaches that we could take, taking stuff right out of the hands of our, our, our standing military and giving it to the Ukrainians and trying to buy something newer, uh, hasn't fully seemed to have been implemented in, in all but a couple of small cases, uh, from what we can tell. Because uh, they haven't been as clear, uh, so I, I think that we could do more. I think if we, if the government really wanted to be innovative, uh, again, if I look at some of what Eastern European countries are doing, which is again taking some of the obsolete equipment that the Ukrainians would just love to have anyways, and then replacing it with newer versions, I think that's that's something Canada could do. But I just don't see any interest in doing that by this government. So I mean, yes, more can be done to be sure, but uh, but it's not being done. Well, we'll see what uh, unfolds in the days and weeks ahead. As mentioned, much more to mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Richard, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Richard Jamuk has a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, and one of the 61 Canadians on this Russian uh, sanction list. I mean, it, it doesn't really have much practical meaning. It's basically be referred to as a stop list. So, like, you're prohibited from, from entering Russia indefinitely. Right, and a lot of people are making the joke, well, there goes my, my vacation to Moscow. But, you know, how, how sad is it when you think about it? Anyway, so 61 in total on this list. And, and some that I guess would seem obvious, like you've got a couple of senior advisors, the prime minister, you've got the head of the CSE, the head of CSIS on, on that list. And then you go through and something like Terry Glavin, a journalist and, and columnist, we've had Terry Glavin on this program many times, he's on that list. John Iveson at the National Post, someone we spoke to many times. Yeah, Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, is on this list. Uh, some other journalists, Mark McKinnon of the Globe and Mail, Sabrina Maddow with the National Post. Uh, Scott Moe is also on that list, Premier of Saskatchewan, the Mayor of Toronto, John Tory. We mentioned the Mayor of Ottawa. It's, some of it doesn't make much sense. John Horgan's on there, too. So they got all three Western premiers. But I, I don't know what it tells us about Putin's mindset or what the point of this is. So... Like Richard Shamuka said, and, and it's it's maybe at some level a badge of honor, but it's still kind of weird and, and jarring at the same time. Welcome back. Rob Brigginridge with you here. A final half hour on this Friday afternoon. We'll get back to your phone calls, a couple other things to get to as well. Right now, though, the question of what to do with 24 Sussex Drive. Uh, that, of course, is the official residence of the prime minister, but... It's not much of a residence at this point. 24 Sussex Drive is in need of some major repairs. So is it worth it? Should we start from scratch with something else? And why have we allowed it to get to this point? It's interesting. There's a new report done for the National Capital Commission. Now, the NCC is the crown corporation that's responsible for all of these government buildings in Ottawa. Uh, so this report suggests that 24 Sussex Drive be replaced 
But as it stands, it's not fit to serve as the home of a major world leader. So it outlines some requirements for a new official residence. Uh, you know, where would that be? What might that look like? What might it cost? This gets political, clearly. And obviously, the prime minister is removed from these decisions. But, you know, it can be awkward for a prime minister who lives in 24 Sussex to, to you know, be the one to be the director or immediate recipient of a, a major investment in the prime minister's residence. But it should transcend, you know, the individual. That this is our head of government. What kind of a, a resident do we want uh, that, that person to have? You know, shouldn't that mean something? Shouldn't that have some significance? Well, joining us for some thoughts on, on maybe what, what needs to change and to factor in other considerations, too. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Russell Mills. He's former chair of the National Capital Commission in Ottawa. Uh, Russ, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Good. Pleased to be here, Rob. Uh, so talk about it from, from your perspective and the time you, you served as chair of the NCC, you know, some of the challenges in, in trying to, to make progress on this issue. Well, it was, a, it was a major source of frustration. You know, I think you, you identified one of the problems rightly in your intro there. It's, uh, it would be very expensive to do, and the prime ministers fear that they will be blamed for spending this money on right. what is perceived as their own residence. And it would be a political price to pay for that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's really the way we should look at it. We should have some independent process so that it's removed from the prime minister's decision making so that we can get on with these things. I think the the real problem with 24 Sussex is the location. You know, it was uh, an old lumber baron's house back in the 19th century and it's a beautiful location for a residence it's right on a cliff overlooking the ottawa river but it's not very wide and it's sort of sandwiched between sussex drive and a cliff that goes down to the river and i don't think that's quite enough space in the modern wild world to provide adequate security for the leader of a g7 country and his family yeah, it's funny when you know when when you I've I've never been there myself, but when you look at pictures, it just seems yeah, it seems like there would be all kinds of of challenges in in providing security. It almost seems like it has you know certain vulnerabilities given its its location. Yeah, it, it's a very vulnerable location, yeah. and uh, that I think that's one of the things this has held things up. You know, right across the street from Twenty Four Sussex is the grounds of Rideau Hall, where the Governor General lives. And that's a much larger piece of property. It's 88 acres, and it's inland, so it's not on the river and not exposed. And my suggestion has been that they sever part of the property, maybe five or six acres of land, from the Rideau Hall property and build a new residence for the prime minister there. It could be away from the roads and provide much better security than 24 Sussex Drive ever could. Right, so those those Rideau Hall grounds are, are quite close to where 24 Sussex Drive is. So it Right be, across yeah. the street. Yeah. Yeah, right across the street. And what they could do if they did decide to do that is add the 24 Sussex property to the Rideau Hall grounds. It would be across the street, but uh, if there it wasn't a high security needs there, it could be a great place to have concerts and things that often go on on the Rideau Hall grounds. So we mentioned the the state of twenty four Sussex Drive and, and that it's you know it's been neglected for this long. I mean it's got to the point where I think I saw one figure over thirty million dollars it would cost to to repair. What's your sense of how that price tag would compare to 
building anew, a building something new, for example, on, on the Rito grounds? Well, uh, you know, a prime minister's residence is, is not a normal house for a right. normal family or people. And, you know, the general public thinks they know what a house should cost, and it's nowhere near $30 million, even for a, a very lavish house. But to provide the security and communications and all the stuff that a prime minister in the modern world needs, um, I think would sort of be in that ballpark for sure. You know, the the White House uh, is on an uh, 18-acre property in the middle of Washington. But even after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, where Timothy McVeigh set off a truck bomb and blew down a whole building and killed 168 people, they closed a bunch of roads in the area around the White House to provide greater distance from the from the White House to surrounding streets, and uh, that's what we need to do with our Prime Minister's residence too, yeah, this, one way or yeah. another. Well, and that, that's an interesting point because you know this this latest report from the NCC suggests that you know building something new that's more than just a home that becomes a lot more functional as is almost a, like yeah. an office for the prime minister or at least official events could be held there does it make sense to to think of it that way absolutely because uh, the, the, that's what it is it should be a place where the the prime minister as well as living there can have meetings and uh, and entertain people and so on much like the white house is yeah you know, where either you could have some staff people working in the place as well. So when you think of the total cost, you shouldn't think of it as just a house for a family. It should be an operations center for the head of the Canadian government. Well, and do you think maybe now's the opportunity to do that? Like, is, is this report, this recommendation, is that maybe the opening that, that we need to, to get the ball rolling? I, I hope it is, because it's a shame to you know, allow the place to continue to deteriorate as it has since 2015. Uh, No one has lived in there since the federal election of 2015 when the the Prime Minister moved into Rideau Cottage on the Rideau Hall grounds, and it's just sitting there deteriorating day by day. Well, but that presents another challenge. I mean, even if we were to build a new residence, there's also the question of what becomes of 24 Sussex Drive. It's got historical value. I mean, maybe it needs to be knocked down, but I don't know. What what would be an ideal solution for that? Uh, I would knock the place down. Yeah. You know, it has. Uh, it was built in 1868, as I said, for a, a wealthy lumber baron's family. And it was a private residence up until 1951 when it was bought by the Canadian government. And Louis Saint Laurent moved in there as the first prime minister. So it's time, you know, it's been the prime minister's residence for 65 years or so. But it goes back way before that. And the house has been modified and changed a number of times. So it has very little architectural value. And uh, the historical value of being the presence of the prime minister could be reserved, preserved through some plaques and maybe a small museum or something to uh, yeah. to, to uh, pay tribute to that time. Well, isn't but the it, building itself can go, I think. I mean, isn't it true that the address itself has such historical significance? It almost it becomes does, shorthand absolutely. for referring to the prime minister's office. Yep, yep, that's, uh, the, that, that, that's right. But uh, it could be the, uh, they could have something there like the 24 Sussex Drive Museum, which would pay tribute to the prime ministers who lived there for the past 65 years. All right, so who ultimately would make the decision here? How how does this process work? 
well, the way it works now, it's a it's a high level government decision, and uh, there has been a committee, I think, of people working on it, who involve uh, deputy ministers from a number of of departments. But because I think there's a fear that a prime minister who approved this would pay a political price for it. It becomes a political decision, right. and the prime minister's office would have to be involved. Um, I think that's the wrong way to do it. We need some independent body to do it, but mm-hmm. as of now, it would be a political decision. Well, we'll see what happens from here. We appreciate your perspective. Russell, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Okay. You're welcome. All right, all the best. Uh, That's uh, Russell Mills. He's a former chair of the National Capital Commission. So his perspective on what should happen. He had a piece recently in the Ottawa Citizen saying no prime minister should ever live at 24 Sussex again. There's just too many issues there. Something's got to give. The the place is, is in desperate need of repair. This current prime minister really hasn't lived there, even though we refer to it as the prime minister's residence. It's really not livable. Uh, that's part of the problem. And so it's almost at some level kind of embarrassing for a country like ours that that's the state of our official head of government residence. I want to begin in this hour, though, the conversation around Earth Day, which is today, a day that's supposed to focus on the environment, protecting the environment, whether we're doing enough uh, to, to uphold that, that end of the bargain. You know, certainly, you know, the polls tell us that uh, Canadians are, are very concerned about climate change. Canadians want action on climate change. Maybe it's, it's hypocrisy on our, our political leaders' part. Maybe it's hypocrisy on our part. That at times, maybe we want different things. And as such, we're acting across purposes. As our next guest writes in a commentary piece for Global News, if the objective of the carbon price is to make it more expensive to use fossil fuels so people shift to cleaner forms of energy, why are governments across Canada responding to the call for consumer relief at the pump? And this has been, I think, a fascinating thing to watch over the last uh, several weeks here. As we've seen gas prices hit record highs, the response from Canadians is to governments, what are you going to do about it? And governments trying to find ways of, of doing exactly that. Now, here in Alberta, for example, we've uh, for now parked the 13 cents a liter excise tax on gasoline. Now, you know, maybe you could argue that's more in line with with the policies of this government next door in B.C. It's interesting because B.C. has had a carbon tax in place for well over a decade now. But B.C. government uh, just recently announced uh, that they're going to offer some one time payments to drivers to help relieve them of the burden of higher gasoline prices. So do we want more expensive fossil fuels or not? I guess it depends. Well, as mentioned, our next guest has an interesting commentary piece up at globalnews.ca looking at some of these questions. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Gregory Jack, Vice President, Public Affairs at Ipsos Public Affairs. Gregory, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm good. And and I was really fascinated by your piece because I I think it's an interesting dichotomy in, in Canadian politics when these two issues collide. What can we glean from polling data that, that might help us better understand this? Well, I think two things are happening. Canadians obviously are concerned about climate change. And, you know, it is Earth Day today, and, and it's kind of timely that we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, the the concern has dropped because the urgent has displaced the uh, important. So climate change has dropped in, in, in its importance. And people are more worried about rising prices, inflation, um, and the cost of living. But they're still worried about climate change. And so uh, the polling tells us that uh, the carbon tax is a divisive uh, policy. 
And people are happy to pay it, but they're not happy to pay it if they don't know that it's going to go to the right causes. That's interesting. So as you alluded to, I mean, there, there are a lot of pressing concerns on the minds of Canadians. So how far down the list would you say climate change has, has slid in recent months? You know, I would say, and you can see um, from our polling in the article that I, that I published, um, it's kind of a middle issue right now. Now, two years ago or three years ago before COVID, it was, it was a top issue. Um, but right now, people are worried about other things. But it, it has not dropped down to the, the level of not concerned. Canadians are worried about it. And, uh, and they're going to be looking to governments to find solutions. But at the same time, they're also looking to governments to find solutions to the rising cost of living, the increases in prices, especially that they see at the gas pump. And so that's going to be an interesting um, uh, thread for governments to have to weave because they're going to have to give Canadians support on the rising cost of living through gas prices at the same time as they can be seen to be acting on climate change. Yeah, and it's it's not uniquely Canadian. I mean, you know, we, we certainly see uh, south of the border, for example, the U.S. president, you know, struggling to reconcile all of this, wanting to make climate change a priority, but recognizing that Americans are, are pretty frustrated with gasoline prices. Uh, so to what extent do we, we, would we describe this as hypocrisy, either hypocrisy on, on politicians' part or, or hypocrisy even on Canadians' part? How do we reconcile this? I, I do think there's some hypocrisy on both sides. I think that uh, governments are trying to show that they're trying to deal with this issue, and, and they're doing this through policies such as the carbon tax. At the same time, when we ask Canadians, you know, what are you willing to pay to fight climate change or, or to do your part, they're not willing to pay very much. They do see that governments and businesses are, or believe that governments and businesses are the ones who have to deal with this. So there's a bit of hypocrisy on all sides, to be frank. Now, at the same time, I, and I think it's reasonable for Canadians to say, look, I mean, we, we support action on climate change, but we don't want to be disproportionately punished, uh, you know, with, with those policies. Is there a way, do you think, to, to factor in both, to, to recognize when there's undue pressure on consumers, but to still be able to move ahead with meaningful environmental policies? I, I do, and I, and I think I alluded to this to my article. You know, I think that at times when price, prices are rising, as we see right now with gas and oil and, uh, and the pressures that Canadians are really feeling um, around rising prices everywhere, governments need to be cognizant of that. But the, the, the ideal solution is maybe not to send them back a check. Maybe it is to reduce the, the burden of something like a carbon tax um, so that they have predictable prices on, on energy. And at the same time, um, you know, when, when oil and gas are cheap, uh, maybe that's the time to invest in in uh, climate solutions and, and have a higher carbon tax. So I, I think there's a way to do this. But, you know, right now we've kind of swapped our, our, our telescope for a microscope, and we're really worried about what happens tomorrow. And, and what happens tomorrow is that, you know, prices are going up and people are feeling very, very stressed, and they're looking for governments to, to find solutions not only to those problems, but also to the bigger problems like climate change they're worried about in the long term. So that's, that's, a, tough, uh, that's a tough problem to solve, but I think Canadians are looking for governments to solve it. Yeah, you also point to another interesting factor. I mean, whether this is by design or, or the product of something else, I mean, gasoline prices are, are very high right now. And sort of the idea behind, you know, a price on carbon is, is to make alternatives more competitive, to, to create an incentive for Canadians to, to switch to you know, electric vehicles, for example. But we're sort of seeing in practice now, is, is, that, is that happening? 
Well, you know, the problem with, with fossil fuels is that uh, there's no real solution right now that can replace them uh, in the short term. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no airplane that can run on wind power yet. We're going to get there, and electric cars are certainly emerging as, as probably the, the future, but <clears throat> it's going to take time. And that's the reason why the carbon tax is set to rise, um, you know, proportionately over a number of years. But the market achieved overnight what the carbon tax was going to achieve. So we got a bit of a preview uh, of what that's going to look like. And what that looks like is people saying, I, I can't afford to switch off of my, my gas-powered vehicle. I have to keep driving it, and I have to pay this, this high price for gas. And, and so ultimately what we need is a, is a, a long-term solution that is going to have alternatives that don't yet exist. So we're going to need oil and gas in the short term. There's no doubt about that. In the long term, I think Canadians do want us to, to shift to, to different forms of energy. But right now, um, it's a difficult situation with very expensive fossil fuels that we don't have an easy substitute for. So people are paying the price. Do you think then, and if we stay in this environment where you know oil prices and by extension gasoline prices are high, that we're, we're going to start to see a shift maybe in how Canadians view policies like a, a carbon tax? I mean, we might. You know, the carbon tax has always been a divisive issue. We, we've never seen our polling uh, support well over 50%. It's always been kind of a 50-50 kind of split. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that people right now who rely on fossil fuels, especially in rural and, and northern areas where they don't have a lot of alternatives, um, are, are, are feeling the pinch. As we go forward and, and as, as governments start to develop policy alternatives and, and as, as, as the market starts to develop different, um, uh, you know, alternatives like electric vehicles, we might see a shift. But ultimately, right now, people are looking at what's happening tomorrow and, and they're feeling very pinched. So I think that the, the, the solution is going to have to be a combination of government action and industry uh, innovation to get us where we need to get to by 2030, which is, you know, when the carbon tax maxes out at $170 yeah. a ton, which, by the way, um, if you look at the current prices of gas, it would have taken quite a long time for the carbon tax to bring them up to where they are now. The market has done what the carbon tax was going to do in a long period, in a very short period of time, and that's been the shock for Canadians, and, and uh, we've all felt it. Yes, indeed. Well, as mentioned, this commentary piece, it's up at globalnews.ca, much more at ipsus.com. Gregory, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, thank you very much. All the best. Uh, Gregory Jack, Vice President of Public Affairs uh, for Canada for Ipsus Public Affairs, ipsus.com. And so his piece today up at globalnews.ca, looking at that disconnect there, that when governments by design create policies to to increase the price of gasoline and then turn around at the same time and saying, how can we reduce the price of gasoline? Yeah, it's a little bit head spinning. But obviously, the the kind of uh, increases we've seen well exceed what was at least planned under that kind of a, a policy approach. But if that's the end you wanted to get to, it's isn't it something to celebrate? So logic would say yes, but politics would say no. What, what government leader is going to go out there and celebrate the, the high price of gasoline? But if that's your objective and, and you got there sooner. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.
Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.